The board at that time recognized that revenue diversification was a priority because we were too dependent on the convention for providing the majority of our revenue. So we developed internally this idea that we want to develop new programs and resources, but rather than do it sort of in an ad hoc manner, like a program here, a book there, can we tie together in some way and thinking about our largest audience being practitioners, something that could really help support them. This is Associations Thrive, the podcast celebrating successful associations and their leaders. I'm your host, Joanna Pineda, CEO and Chief Troublemaker at Matrix Group International. Listen in as top association executives tell all, revealing the creative and innovative ways they're increasing membership, generating revenue, nurturing engagement, and reimagining their organizations. By the way, if you've launched a new initiative, created new member services, or updated your governance structure and are seeing great results, I want to hear your story and so do my listeners. I'd love to have you as a guest. Go to podcast.matrixgroup.net and apply to be on Associations Thrive. Now let's dive into this week's show. Today, I'm speaking with John Segoda, Executive Director of the National Association for Gifted Children, or NAGC. Hey, John, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Joanna. It's a real pleasure to be here. I'm honored to be on this podcast, so thank you. Oh, thanks so much. So, hey, tell us about NAGC. Oh, uh, where to begin? There, There is so much to tell. NAGC is, as you have explained to our listeners, is the National Association for Gifted Children. We are approaching our 70th year. And our members, we represent about 3,000 members across the country. And our members are primarily educators working in schools in a variety of different school systems, as well as higher education and research. But we also include among our members, parents and counselors and therapists, and even some advocates for gifted children. So it's a really unique configuration where it's not solely focused in one sort of area or field or discipline, but it's sort of multidisciplinary, if you will. So John, you hear about the different types of gifted and talented programs around the country. Are there federal requirements or is this done at the state level? Is it even, uneven across the country? So tell us the state of these programs around the country. Yeah, that's an excellent question. When I came to NAGC about three and a half years ago, I had been working in education associations throughout my career. And across education, you often look at what's happening, what is at the federal level. A lot of education policies determine at the state level and the local level, but there usually are some federal guidelines in place and broad policies depending upon the specific area of education. And when I came to NAGC, I quickly learned that in terms of gifted education and gifted students, there really aren't any federal guidelines or mandates that it really is Ah. determined at the state and local level. And that's including whether or not to offer any sort of programs for gifted students or identify gifted students or provide services. So what ends up happening in terms of gifted children, gifted and talented education, it is very much a patchwork where there's a sort of continuum that you'll have on one end, those states that have state mandates in place and state funding to support gifted programs and services, some states that offer maybe one or the other, and then those states who have neither at the state level. 
John, you have a lot of members that are researchers. Is there a lot of research happening in this field and what kind of work are they doing? There is a lot of research that's happening in this field. One of our major publications, in fact, our flagship publication, is an academic research journal called Gifted Child Quarterly. It is seen and viewed as the premier journal in the field of gifted education. And our members who are doing research, they're researching many different areas around gifted children and gifted and talented education. They're conducting research on education strategies. A lot of researchers will look at areas of policy, but of course, also looking at gifted and talented children themselves and how these students learn, what are their unique attributes. Ah. And so it's interesting that the journal itself will cover many different kinds of areas of research specifically. Hey, John, before we get into the things that NAGC is doing to thrive and thriving you are, Let's talk about your journey. So this is your first CEO role. Yes. But tell us how you got here. So it's been a really interesting journey. And I was thinking about this as I was listening to some other episodes of the Association Thrive podcast and thinking about how I've come to this point. I think like many other individuals who are working at associations, I've kind of fell into this. I came to the DC area after graduating from college in Massachusetts. My undergraduate studies were in political science and international studies. Uh, like me. Yes. <laughs> Great. <laughs> and so when I came to DC, I was really interested in working in some kind of organization where that was going to be the focus. And after a couple of years of just getting my feet under me and just finding a job and finding a place to live, I remember waking up one day and had been in the for-profit sector and was like, this isn't where I want to be. I need, want to move into the nonprofit sector. And I had actually two job opportunities offered to me at the same time, one of which was at an association. It was TESOL International Association, who represents English language teachers. I know TESOL. Yes. The other was actually, wasn't an association, but there was a an organization that published a foreign policy journal. And I decided to go with TESOL International Association. And it was, you know, quickly then learned all about what does it mean to work in an association. And I immediately was gratified at working at a mission-driven organization and understanding that what we're doing is helping people do their jobs better. In this case, helping people become better teachers and ultimately impacting students. Mm. And in the case of TESOL International Association, even though the focus is on language teaching, in a lot of contexts where, like the United States, it happens to be also a student population that is unfortunately marginalized because they're speaking of the language at home that isn't the common or dominant language. I felt it very fulfilling that the work we we're doing was going towards something that was almost a cause. There was almost a social justice element to it, but then was really excited about the many different elements within an association and having the opportunity to work in many different areas and work directly with members and that collaboration, that great sort of synthesis of staff and volunteer partnership. So I, I was with TESOL for many, many years and throughout that had a, a lot of great mentors that I worked with and executive directors and I remember one of my first executive directors, he had basically said, you need to get your CAE. Great advice. You know, and he really provided a lot of support for me to pursue my CAE, which absolutely was the right thing to do. And another executive director really provided a lot of support for me to apply for and then get accepted into ASAE's Diversity Executive Leadership Program, which was a monumental experience ah. that many now 
association leaders and execs and CEOs can point to as being alumni of that amazing program. And also went back to school, got my master's degree. And several years ago, there was an opportunity that opened itself up to apply to be an executive director. It was actually at TESOL. It didn't work out. It wasn't meant to be. Hmm. I remember at the time when the door opened, I said, well, here's the chance to apply to become an executive director. The timing wasn't right for me or for TESOL. It wasn't meant to be, but you know, I was definitely interested in pursuing that path. And eventually, a couple more opportunities opened up, including here at NAGC. And I remember at the time, as I had been preparing for this and working with, you know, as an executive coaches and career coaches and everything, being told that sometimes it's just a matter of like the right time and the right fit and you'll know it. Mm. And I remember going into that interview after having gone through several interviews where my thought process was, I'm just going to sort of put it all out there. Here I am either I'm going to be the kind of leader you're going to want or not. And there was some amount of freedom in that thinking Mm. and it happened to be the right fit. Wow. I'm incredibly fortunate to be working with an amazing and supportive board and a really committed staff. It's been a tumultuous journey over the past three and a half years because of the pandemic. So you started what, about six months before the pandemic? Pretty much August, 2019. So hi, yeah. As I said, I'm really fortunate to have this amazing and supportive board. There was, you know, a period of time where I was able to joke with the board where I would say, Well, you didn't mention a pandemic during the interview. <laughs> yeah. And you know, I recognize I was fortunate to have that kind of relationship where I would kind of joke. But, you know, I think it brought us together, you know, in a tighter way as we were all kind of working through this crisis and thinking about where we're going with the organization and the steps we need to take to successfully survive and move to the next chapter so we can start to thrive. Well, you had to survive as an organization, but you also had this huge responsibility to your members because they're educators. And the whole notion of what do we do with students during a pandemic was like at the center of the universe. Mm -hmm. And so you had to provide support to your members really fast. Yes. The pandemic served as a catalyst for a lot of changes that NAGC needed to undergo. SAW was an organization with a long and rich history, very committed volunteer and leadership base, a wealth of resources to draw from, but also there were some opportunities for changes and let's say sort of renovations. Membership had been declining. Revenue hadn't been where it once was. And then of course the pandemic, you know, there was a period of panic initially. It really jeopardized your existence. It did. For many organizations, right? So you had to do some really different things. Absolutely. We still are very dependent upon our convention, but when that's your primary source of revenue and you're not able to meet in person, it forces you to think in new ways. But thinking about what we were doing, one of the things I had seen is that when I came in was that NAGC's online presence, it's a digital programming really wasn't, it had been in place for some time, but a lot had not happened. So there was an opportunity to really take steps there to have more of an online presence, bring back some webinars, look at digital programming where it hadn't been there before. So in the early days of the pandemic, I brought our staff team together and said, well, what have we done? What are resources we have provided before that we can bring to members, bring to parents, bring to educators? We started doing a couple of free webinars just to pull the resources information we already had and share it with people. And sometimes just reminding them that we have this information. So that became a really interesting time to really look at, well, 
as we're scrambling to try to figure out what we can do, look, look within ourselves, what we've already done and be able to channel those resources. So just to be able to take those steps yeah, yeah. to try to provide some information and help for people as we were all trying to figure out how to operate day to day. And especially looking at our members and those working with gifted children, like what are we going to do since we're at home? So John, you mentioned that you're very reliant on your annual conference for revenue, but also probably as a big way to bring a large percentage of your members together. Pandemic happens. What did you do? And what are you doing now about convention? It was interesting is that going into 2020 initially, our conventions in November of each year. So our 2019 convention was my first and it was successful in a lot of ways, but it was very modest in terms of attendance and revenue. And everyone was immediately looking ahead to the next year in 2020, where we were scheduled to be at a destination at the Disney Coronado Springs Resort, which had really seen our highest attendance in the past. So there's a lot of excitement about the future. When that wasn't going to be feasible, we quickly had to figure out, well, what can we do? Like many associations at the time, figuring out contracts, how can we renegotiate, make changes and so forth. But again, it was we had to start doing more online. We had a small event we typically have in the spring of each year, which we had postponed to the summer. And that was our first like online conference. And it went extremely well. I don't want to say we were white knuckling it, but there was so much unknown for us. It was our first time doing anything like this. Everyone was white knuckling it. Okay. Well, <laughs> we were in good company then. Yes. <laughs> but the conference went very, very well. It was a smaller conference, but just everything went smoothly. We were fortunate that some of the systems we had worked with for our convention anyways, as far as like the tools, online tools to collect abstracts and so forth, that that ecosystem was worked well for us and had other tools we could use. So then when we were decided to move our convention to a virtual format, we stayed within that ecosystem. It worked well, but it forced our thinking in terms of reconfiguring the duration, the scope of the conference, and even we rethought our pricing models. Mm. One of the approaches we wanted to do is, and I actually saw this from another organization where they had individual pricing, but sort of larger group pricing models. So we offered for a large flat fee, an institution or a school could send as many people as they wanted. There was no cap. Ah. And we doubled our attendance we did for our convention. We typically get 22 to 2,400, maybe in a good year, 2,500. We had over 4,500. It was our biggest audience we had seen, certainly in many, many, many years. I can't say forever, but certainly in many, many, many years. So it was exciting to be able to expand our reach. And you know, while the revenue model was very different, was it what we traditionally had been? As we were going through that process, there was a lot of internal discussions with our board and our leader, our leadership and among staff is as we're in this new era and we're being forced to try new things, we need to rethink how do we define success beyond simply just the revenue side, which is always important. And then making sure that we learn the lessons of each new thing we experiment with. So it started an era of a lot of experimentation, piloting new things and building off from one to the other and a lot of successes we achieved. So that was an exciting time. And through that, we slowly start to build some knowledge and infrastructure about this new digital domain, stabilizing membership and other pieces as well. So we actually navigated the pandemic pretty successfully, certainly taking advantage of the PPP loans really helped a lot. Some difficult decisions were made, but largely we we ended up leaving the main pandemic period in a very stable place. Nice. And so you've had successful virtual programs. 
Your conference was in person last year, but you've decided to still do virtual because it was successful for you. So maybe tell us a little bit about the new virtual or hybrid strategy that you're pursuing. Sure. So our convention in 2020, as I mentioned, was virtual. We doubled our attendance. Amazing. Which was amazing. Then for 2021, we had a hybrid strategy where both the in-person and the virtual component. It was successful in a lot of ways. I think we went into that as participation patterns were changing. We Mm. we were hopeful to get as large a virtual attendance. What we saw in 21 is that we had a very modest budget or goals for in-person attendance. We exceeded those, Mm. but the virtual attendance wasn't quite what we hoped for. As obviously... Things are constantly evolving and changing. So for our convention at 22, we decided not to continue with a hybrid strategy. So we may focus on an in-person convention and we had great attendance uh, in Indianapolis last November, but now we're shifting to have a create a separate virtual event, which we're hoping to enroll this spring and just really have a, a new online event that would be just separate from the convention. So just expanding our virtual programming in different ways. You know, I think that's interesting. So you're doing in-person annual conference and another conference virtually, and you'll probably attract different people. Plus, it's a different time of year. Exactly. Neat. Hey, so John, let's talk about something else that you're doing differently, and that's in the area of DEI or diversity, equity, and inclusion. So this is a big deal for you. You're doing a lot in this area, so maybe tell us about that. And it's multifaceted for you, right? Like you're yes. trying to increase diversity on the member side, but also there's a DEI component to the children who are beneficiaries of these programs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when I arrived in 2019, the association had long had a commitment to I would say equity in gifted education specifically and diversity and equity both. Hmm. Then there was very clearly demonstrated on a lot of past activities, research, publications, and so forth. And then when the events of 2020 unfolded and, and the murder of George Floyd, there was a lot of internal soul searching. And I have to applaud the NAGC board in particular because they really took the lead on this. And the board discussed, you know, immediately the discussion it was about not simply issuing a statement, but making a commitment to make some changes. And what some of the context was, was recognizing that although the organization had a longstanding commitment around diversity, equity, and inclusion, recognizing we haven't done enough. Ah. There's much more to do. And so what the board worked hard on is developing not only an initial statement, but then later basically a call to action. We call it our championing equity statement. We're really making commitments to really address a lot of changes and really make this a much bigger priority than it has been. It was driven in part by, quite frankly, the history of gifted education. To borrow the terminology from the statement, it is checkered at best around diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm. What I saw is that as a lot of organizations were doing similar kind of soul searching in 2020 and in other disciplines, social sciences and education, you look back to the beginnings of the particular fields, leaders from the late 19th and early 20th century, their value system was very different than where we are today. Right. And making having to acknowledge that. And what does that mean today and the impact today? There had been a lot of discussions when the board issued the statement. There was a series of town hall discussions with leaders and members over many months and really thinking about what are we going to do differently? And that continues to this day. 
there's always much more to do. Right. One of the immediate outcomes actually came in the form of an idea from some of our members. And it really was a gift that we have some leaders in this space in equity and gifted education that had recommended in early 2020 having some sort of add-on event for our convention mm. in 2020. They had something that happened in previous years and they thought well, it was time to bring this forward. And in talking with our board, this suggestion came forward like, rather than this having it being an add-on to a convention, it ought to stand on its own. Given where we are now, our new commitments, here's an opportunity to really demonstrate that and to show this equity for gifted students of color is, is a priority. So we worked with those volunteer leaders and internally, we created a virtual event. The idea originally came forward for 2020, then we ended up scheduling it in the summer of 2021. We called it the National Symposium on Equity for Black and Brown Gifted Students. I really just wanted to emphasize and focus on this particular area because the challenge is that access to programs, to gifted programs, identification of students who are gifted, that equity has been challenged there, that there are many, many brilliant students of color who have not had access to programs, who have not been identified. And we wanted to highlight that. And so it was very successful. We really just were going to we went about creating the program and making it a virtual program because we wanted to make sure people could attend no matter where they were at. And we just knew it was the right thing to do. And we hoped people would come. And we were really pleased to have several hundred people come in our first iteration. Nice. And so it's now part of our suite of programs annually. And we had a second one last summer and we are planning a third one this summer. And so, John, it sounds like what you're doing with this national symposium is really in it could have been an add-on to the annual conference, but by making it a separate event, you're raising the profile of the initiative and the conference. Absolutely. And the attended issues that are being addressed through that event. Right, right, right. That sounds amazing. Hey, speaking of the checkered past and the different ways that these programs you know, are really managed across the country, you publish a report. Mm-hmm. It's your biannual report on gifted education in the U.S. So tell us about that. That sounds like a big deal. It is a big deal. So we've been doing it for at least a decade, I think even longer. It is called the State of the States of Gifted Education, and it is published biannually, so every other year. And it's actually a cooperative effort. NAGC works closely with an organization called the Council of State Directors for Programming for the Gifted. So those are state leaders in education who oversee the gifted education programs and services in their respective states. And so we work together collaboratively with them, putting together basically a survey that we send out to all the states. We contract with a research team, the most recent report and the version before that, we worked with a great research team at the University of North Texas to pull together this data from all the states about that looks at what are the policies that are in place, what kind of resources are available to support gifted and talented education, gifted students, what does the programming look like, what kind of issues and challenges are you facing within your state. As I said, we've been publishing it for many years. We published the most recent one in November of last year of 2022. We've expanded over the past several years to make sure we include all 50 states. And this past year, we included Guam and Puerto Rico, so expanding all the states and territories that participate, but really just taking a look at what does gifted education look like at the state or district or territory level, because it is something, as I said before, is not federally mandated or required. 
John, is this report something that you distribute to everybody? You can download it, or is this something that people purchase? It is available for free. Uh-huh. You can download it from our site. Then I will put it in the show notes. That'd be great. That would be great. Yes. And in fact, since we did only just publish it a few months ago, we are planning a webinar with the research team to walk through the results that they did present at our convention. And they will also be presenting at our annual advocacy day, which we're holding next month here in Washington, D.C. Wow. Hey, John, you've got a new initiative that you're super excited about called the LEAP Framework. So tell us about that. So maybe if I could back up a little bit, how we came to create this new, it's a framework, it's going to be a series of products and resources that are specifically for practitioners, for educators. As I mentioned before, how with the pandemic causing so much disruption, you know, I came into NAGC, the board at that time recognized that revenue diversification was a priority because we were too dependent on the convention for providing the majority of our revenue. And although NAGC has a strong publications history, as well as a history around professional learning programs, there was an ebb and flow over time and things were kind of at a low ebb when I arrived. So as we started to think about new ways to develop programming and new resources that could ultimately bring in more revenue, we did a lot of internal analysis. I brought in some experts consultants that conducted a content audit that looked at not only the resources information we had been producing, but just our business practices around publishing, our governance strategies around publishing. And then we subsequently did some surveys of our members and our audience about what do they look for in terms of resources or professional learning opportunities and so forth. Recognizing that things are changing and the way people are consuming information is changing. We also saw subsequently, you know, a lot of changes in the publishing industry that supports gifted education, as many other organizations have seen, the consolidations in publishing and so forth. So we developed internally this idea that we want to develop new programs and resources, but rather than do it sort of in an ad hoc manner, like a program here, a book there, can we tie together in some way and thinking about our largest audience being practitioners, something that could really help support them. Mm. So as staff, they actually came up with the idea of this acronym LEAP, which stands for Lead with Effective and Actionable Practice. We brought in some members to help build out and flesh that out, what that looks like for practitioners, really emphasizing the terms of leading, action, and practice, and effective as well. And so this framework was developed to really, if you look at it, it's written in a way that although It could be applied for anybody in education. It was written specifically by and for those in gifted education and experts in gifted education. And it's a way to, one of the core beliefs behind it is that educators are intentionally leading their own learning and learning of their students. So it's helping to empower educators. They can help determine what is it I need to know? How can I go about learning it? How can I apply it for my students? Ah. So it's a self-reflective approach. It's a framework of self-reflective professional learning that's then going to be used and applied to the different core concept and topic areas in gifted education, like curriculum enrichment, like supporting special populations and diversity, equity, inclusion. So we previewed it at our convention in November. There was a lot of questions behind it because it's a new and innovative approach, but there was a lot of excitement, especially from the practitioners who saw themselves in it. And uh, we're in the process of developing the first manuscript 
we should be having the manuscript sending out to reviewers in the next week or so. And our goal is to be able to publish. It's actually going to be both printed publications and online learning modules. So a blended learning approach. So our goal is to have the first suite of those published by the spring and then a second suite, hopefully by the summer and really taking a, a new approach to the resources, but also what it does is it looks at what we've done as an organization and other resources we've developed and how we can build those in as well. So it's a lot of building on our history as an organization and the expertise we've developed over time and providing it to people in a new way. Yeah. So it sounds like it's a framework for professional development for your practitioners that guides them through the different resources that NAGC offers. Exactly. So it maybe helps me figure out like what webinar I need to watch next and what publication I need to really double down on next. So amazing. Wow, John, you're doing a whole lot of new things. It sounds like you've reimagined the organization in the last three years. How's membership? Our membership is good. Our membership yes. is very good. Yay. You know, when I came on board, membership had been steadily declining. Right. I was able to like reemphasize the focus on membership because that's sort of one of our core purposes and really has stabilized over the years. And we've seen as a lot of people coming back to NAGC, which was great. And one of the connected things is we've just launched a new website and our new database system and immediately have seen some of the benefits there. We're no longer getting the user complaints about our online system that our older system you know, had been causing a lot of challenges for members. So nice. we're trying to really make it easier for members to come back. And so we've, we've seen that play out over the last few years and our membership is stable and growing. Hey, before we go, you said to me while we were prepping that like Sean Boynes of the American Counseling Association, you're a governance geek. So there's another one. Yes, yes. And I remember listening to the great podcast with Christina Luan, and, and we share that as well. Oh, she's another one too. Absolutely. It's very important. It's very important. Yeah, it's interesting how governance can really power an association or really hold it back. So are you making some changes to the governance or not? Oh, yes. Well, I think governance needs to continually evolve. Fair. It needs to continually evolve because associations, they need to continually evolve. And as I've talked with my board, I think, you know, encourage them to look at that governance is about the system overall and that one of their stewardship responsibilities is not only like the resources, human and financial, but is the system operating in its most effective way? And how is it evolving to meet the ever-changing needs of our members and the field? And so there's been a lot of changes in governance. I think some of the changes looking back have been just how we view governance, how it really needs to operate effectively. And then thinking through what attended changes need to happen at the policy level, at the process level. I really subscribe to what's published in the book, The Will to Govern Well. I was involved in a governance review and restructuring at my former organization many years ago and found that book to be so invaluable. They talk about in that book, governance being you know, system and process and culture and thinking through those different dimensions. Yeah. So we have been making changes to our governance. It's some at the policy level, some at the process level, but just even our thinking around it and moving the board to operate at a more strategic level and moving away from this sort of management approach or process-oriented approach, which is an easy place to fall into. Right. Wow. Well, you know what? You'll have to come back and tell us about 
gosh, the new virtual strategy, the new national symposium, the LEAP framework, and these governance changes that you're making. So we'll see you in the future. So John, thank you so much for sharing so much of what you're doing and congratulations on your success. Thank you. Thank you so much. We're really excited about what's happening and the next steps we're taking into the future. Thanks for listening to Associations Thrive. We're so glad to have you here. You know, my personal mission and the mission of my company, Matrix Group International, is to help associations and nonprofits increase membership, generate revenue, and thrive in the digital space. I want to hear stories of how your organization is thriving in today's challenging landscape. Please apply to be on my show by going to podcast.matrixgroup.net. By the way, do you need help with a digital initiative? Maybe it's a website redesign, a new membership database, or a hybrid meeting that you're planning. I'd love to connect with you. Please visit the Matrix Group website at matrixgroup.net. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode of Associations Thrive. Don't forget to subscribe to the show, leave a five-star rating, post a comment, and share it with your colleagues and friends.